Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay, with, I lay, I lay last night with my father. Let us, let us make him drink wine again tonight also, that you go in and lie with him. That way we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know... When, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Their firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of Ammonites to this day. And this is the word of the Lord. Wow, what a, what a, just a, that was the most pained thanks be to God that I've ever heard in my entire life. Thanks be to God? Like, I'm not sure if I'm thankful for that one, but it is a word from the Lord. Uh, no, you get to passages like this, you know, when you, when you read the Old Testament, and especially, I think it's really important that we talk about them in church, because when you're reading Genesis, this is like, you get to this like week two, okay, when you open, open Genesis, and you get to a passage, and you're like, what do I do with that? How, how is that supposed to be encouraging and uplifting at all? And, and you know, it's difficult. But I think it's really important for us to, to process it as a church family. And I actually think that the Lord has something for us, even in passages like this. Uh, you know, uh, I'm late to the train on this. I, I'm late, late to the party. Uh, but... I just discovered Masterclass, okay? Any Masterclass users out there? There's a few. Masterclass is pretty cool. Um, if, in case you're unfamiliar with Masterclass, I think I had heard of it, but I had never really seen how cool it is. Masterclass is like these really well-made, tailored classes for you to learn um, from an expert in a field about their field. So for example, you can get on Masterclass and you can watch Gordon Ramsay actually instruct you how to do it instead of yell at people for not doing it correctly. Or you can watch uh, like Steph Curry teach you how to do ball handling and shooting so that you can continue to watch the NBA from your couch and not do any of the things. Or you can, I actually heard, I, I don't know what he teaches, but I saw Samuel L. Jackson has a Masterclass and I assume that he teaches uh, the way to use uh, uh, profanity uh, proficiently. So that's, that's my assumption uh, with Samuel L. Jackson, at least. Um, in this text, what we have before us is a master class. It's not one that you would sign up to teach, uh, but it's a master class on sin. And in this passage, Lot is giving us a master class of how to sin, and all the things, I really think that you can learn almost everything there is to know about sin from this passage and the next because he passes the baton to his 
to his uncle Abraham in just a moment. They teach a duo class. Lot teaches the first half of the class. It's a two-part class. The second part of the class, Abraham is teaching just this master class of how to like screw up your life and, and live a sinful uh, existence. And so I think that as we open this, uh, you know, oftentimes we think about the Bible as being a list of stories or a compilation of stories of heroes that we should emulate. And here today we come to two people that are well known in the Bible and it's basically like do the exact opposite of everything that they say here. They say do what I say, not what I do, but here it's like don't do anything that they're saying or doing uh, in this passage. So, we're going to dive right in, and uh, last week, just to catch you up on the story, last week, if you missed, uh, it was the, the wonderful, it does, Genesis does get better, by the way, okay? It's, you really hit a valley here in the middle of just kind of some really terrible uh, passages uh, of examples of, of sin, but, it, you know, we're about, to, we're about to head on our way back up with Isaac being born in a couple weeks, and, and we'll be heading up that way, but last week, we, we covered Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, which Lot and his family were living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was a terrible place. Every person in Sodom uh, deserved the judgment of God, and God rained down sulfur and fire from heaven. And so we covered that last week. If you have questions about it or you weren't here, go check out the podcast. Uh, so we're not, gonna go, we're not gonna unpack all of that again today, but at the end of Sodom and Gomorrah, what we saw happen is uh, the, the angels of the Lord pulled Lot and his family out, and Lot begs that they can go into the small city of Zoar, which is like a small Sodom. And Zoar itself means small, and so that's how we know it was a small city. It's just a little city, it's just Zoar. But then when he gets to Zoar, what we find in this passage is he's afraid to even live in Zoar. He's seen what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah, so he's like, Zoar is a lot like Sodom, I don't wanna live in this place. So I'm going to run away. I'm afraid of what's happening here. So we pick up the story with Lot running into the hills and living in a cave. And so hear this, uh, verse 30. Now Lot went up, to, uh, went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. This is a really interesting choice for Lot, uh, that he would live in a cave instead of the obvious choice which isn't written here, but it's obvious to all of us who have been following this story. He should have just gone back to live with his uncle Abraham. That's super obvious. Why did Lot and Abraham split in the beginning? Lot hitched his trailer to Abraham, followed Abraham around everywhere, and then at some point they said, look, you got too much stuff, I've got too much stuff, we're going two different ways. Abraham let Lot pick which direction they wanted to go, that he wanted to go, and Abraham took the other direction. Lot chose poorly, and now, What's happened? All of Lot's possessions, all of his servants, they've been destroyed. It's just him and his two daughters now. There's no reason why he shouldn't just go back and plug back in with the family of Abraham. But Lot doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do that? Because it would be like you moving back in into your parents' basement. Like, I don't know about you, but that's like my pride. When I read this, this is like the one point of sin that I'm just like, I totally resonate with that. Uh, I, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I would have had the strength to do that just as Lot didn't do it and decided I would rather live in a cave than go back and live with my uncle and his wealth. And I get that. I would rather live in a cave sometimes than to go back to my hometown and have to explain to people that I, that I went to high school with and that I have known me my whole life that like, hey, I made some really bad life choices and here I am. I, I get it, but it's still... Pride, possibly shame, that's plaguing Lot in this situation. 
And so what we see in this master class that Lot is teaching us on sin, that Lot and Abraham are joint teaching us, is, uh, don't worry, it's, it's a normal length sermon with a lot of points. I have nine lessons about sin from this passage. It's the most points I've ever had in a, in a sermon, all right? So let's buckle in. Um, the first one is sin will prevent you from some simple common sense decisions. Sin will prevent you from some simple common sense decisions. For Lot, it should have been common sense just to return to go back to his parents, but he was plagued with shame. We're not sure exactly what he was plagued with, but I assume he was plagued with shame and pride and said, I can't do that. There's some things I can do, but I can't do that, even though it's the simple common sense decision. Sin will prevent you from making good decisions, oftentimes. What we see happen in this cave is the metaphorical sense of living in a cave matches the literal sense of living in a cave. The darkness of living in the cave, in a literal sense, it it carries over into a metaphorical sense. And we see one of the top yuck moments of the entire scripture. It's just one of those moments that you're like, wow, that's twisted. Uh, Verse 31 And the firstborn said to the younger, our father's old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. And so the second lesson that we learn in this master class on sin is this. Just because your sin is reasonable, it does not mean it's excusable. Just because your sin is reasonable, it does not mean that it's excusable. I would dare say that most sin is reasonable for those of us who are committing it at that moment. We rationalize how we get there. And so you can easily resonate with Lot's daughters in this situation. Their two fiancés, each of their fiancés, were, were just put to death in Sodom. They, they just died like the rest of them. They, and now they're looking around, and they're two single women. They're, their father is getting old. And in this day and age, it's not like you could go and get a job somewhere. No, they... They are basically, the, the, the plot for, for women in this day and age was to get married and have children, and that was your form of social security. When you had children, those children are then committed to take care of you as you get older. There was no social services to send you a check every week. No, it's your children that would take care of you as you got older. And so here these women are, now they see that their lives are wrecked. They don't have those, that social security anymore. And so they're like, we need to have children. And we need to preserve our father's line. It will be of great shame to him if he doesn't have grandchildren. And so they think, this is the way that we're gonna do it. We're gonna scheme. And so they come up with a scheme. And on the first night, the, the, the first daughter, the older daughter, get, gets her father very, very drunk and goes in and conceives a child with her father. But Lot is so intoxicated that he doesn't even realize or remember what happened. And then on the very next night, they do it again. The second one conceives a child by her father. Lot here should be reminding us of Genesis chapter 9, 8, when when Abraham, uh, when Abraham, when Noah got off the ark he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make some wine. So he went and planted a vineyard. It was a very long uh, sin plan that he had. He planted a vineyard. He fermented grapes. He made wine, and he got himself really drunk. It took several years, but he did it, and then it was to his shame uh, after that as his sons came in, and one of them looked at him wrong. 
and uh, committed a sin in that way. And so Lot here reminds us of Noah, but it's way worse. I mean, this is just a, a very much worse situation that we have here. And I think that one of the lessons that we learn is just because your sin is reasonable doesn't mean it's excusable. But the second one that we learn is sin is an abuse of God's good gifts. Sin is an abuse of God's good gifts. What we see in this passage are two good gifts that are being abused, both alcohol and sex. Alcohol, we know from Scripture, is a gift from the Lord. It says in, in Psalm 104, 15, God has given us wine to gladden the heart of man. Jesus is often found drinking. Uh, he's, he's drinking wine often uh, throughout the New Testament. I myself enjoy alcohol uh, in its proper way and, and not to the abuse of alcohol. But we do know that alcohol is easy to abuse. The, the wine that Jesus was drinking uh, just to be clear here, I've heard the argument that it was actually just grape juice. Has anybody ever heard that argument? Uh, there's a few, and uh, let, me, let me talk about that for just a second. Um, grape juice was invented in 1868 by Edward Welch uh, so that Christians who believed in prohibition could have something that they could drink that was not alcoholic for communion. And so it was literally invented for communion wine, um, I had a family member one time give me this argument that uh, Jesus, um, Jesus wasn't drinking wine, he was drinking juice, and you know, there's lots of places in the Bible you could go to to argue differently with that, uh, but then you also can just look at history. So what I did is I, I went the, the nuclear route, uh, which is like I know people that are smarter than almost everyone because I live in Boston, and uh, I talked to one of my friends who ha who's an expert. Uh, he has a PhD from Harvard in the classics and in, in uh, this uh, like 2,000-year-ago biblical time history. So I was like, hey, why don't you give us your opinion on this? And I just looped in the family member into the email, and then this was jerk move, you know? And then my friend with the PhD wrote like a 10-page paper, uh, probably in 10 minutes, about how uh, there's no way that could have been grape juice. It was actually wine. Uh, but it was weaker than our wine. Well, he did conclude that. It, it was weaker, but it was actually real wine that Jesus was drinking. So, <laughs> alcohol is a gift from the Lord. But the abuse of alcohol leads to all sorts of sins. So while we can say that God has given us wine to gladden the heart of man, we also see Proverbs 20, that wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There's a variety of different ways that you can abuse alcohol. And the most straightforward way to abuse alcohol is simply to drink too much. And how do you know when you're drinking too much? Well, that's going to be a little bit different for each person. Absolutely, a little different for each person. But just as a general guideline, if your motor functions or your mind are impaired, if you're not able to make good decisions and you're not able to use your body in the way that God's designed your body to be used, that is too much. That's too far. You have to, everybody has to draw that line for themselves. But there is a line that is too far. There's also other ways to abuse alcohol. People can use it as a crutch. If you run to alcohol every time you're feeling anxious or depressed, that's probably a, an abuse of the good gift that God has given us. And it's an abuse because you're not trusting in the Lord in those moments. You're just running to these substances to numb your pain each time. If you use alcohol enough to develop a chemical dependency upon it, that certainly 
is abuse. And, and here's the reality, church. I think that most of our church understands that alcohol is a gift from the Lord that can be enjoyed and should be enjoyed by those who can do that in a way that is non-sinful. But I think that also most of our church, we are just to the point to where we need to reevaluate our relationship with alcohol, many of us. Uh, it, it isn't helping you as much as you think it is oftentimes. And you need to take a serious look. Am I using this as a crutch? Am I using this to avoid my pain and my sorrow? Am I drinking too much? Have, in the past six months, how many times have I drank more than what I should have drank? How many times have I used this as a crutch and not as a gift from the Lord? I really think that we should take a step back and evaluate it. I also want us to be a church where we recognize that as a gift from the Lord, but at the same time, that it's a safe place for those who are in recovery and for those who cannot have any of it. There, you know, there's a famous saying in AA that one drink is too much and a thousand are not enough. And that's a reality for people in our congregation. I, I can tell you of multiple people in our congregation who are recovered addicts, and we need to have a sensitive conscience for those who can't touch any of it. Because if it leads you to go to that crazy place too often, then it's just not for you. And when you look at Lot here, the very fact that Lot can get blackout drunk two nights in a row tells me something about his relationship with alcohol. I do not think that this is a rare occurrence where he just made a simple mistake. No, if you're getting that drunk two nights in a row, you have a problem with alcohol. And Lot had a problem with alcohol here. He, he is not treating it the way it's to be treated. Similarly, sex can be a good gift from the Lord that's abused. You know, many churches, they don't teach on sex at all, and when they do, it's, it's, it's communicated as this, dirt, this dirty thing that you shouldn't do ever uh, unless you're married, and then you should only do it and never talk about it ever in, in any circumstances. But the reality is, sex is a good gift from the Lord. It's meant to be enjoyed, much as alcohol is meant to be enjoyed, but the abuses of sex are almost more dangerous than the abuses of alcohol. And there's a reason why that is, the power of sex. Sex is so powerful. It's meant to be this thing that's powerful. When two people exhibit sex for one another, they're becoming one flesh, both in a literal and a, in a metaphorical kind of way. And they're being reminded of the covenant that they gave before the Lord, that I belong completely to you and you belong completely to me. And so when that act is done outside of the bounds of God's intended place, which is one man, one woman, for life, under the covenant of marriage, when that act is done outside of those bounds, it, it has the great potential to hurt. There's a reason why there's no abuse that hurts as much as sexual abuse. And it's because it's this powerful, powerful thing that outside of the right place that God's prescribed for us to use it in is powerful to hurt. But in the right place is so powerful to heal and so powerful to bring two people together. It's like the, the married couple, every time they have sex, they're renewing their covenant vows to one another, saying, I belong completely to you. You belong completely to me. Their love is being renewed and refreshed in that kind of way. But sex can also be abused, and here we see not only alcohol being abused, but sex being abused. The fourth lesson that we learn from this passage is the sin of the surrounding culture has a way to infiltrate even the strongest believers. 
The sin from the surrounding culture has a way of infiltrating even the strongest believers. Lot and his daughters have left Sodom, and we know Sodom to be a place that has an anything-goes mindset when it comes to sexuality. And I, saw, I loved the way that one commentator put it. They said, Sodom may be destroyed, but it was reborn in that cave on that dark night. We see that the sin of the surrounding culture communicated to Lot's daughters that this is an appropriate way to behave. It communicated to Lot that this is an appropriate way to behave. The sin of Sodom rubbed off on Lot and his daughters. And I think that this is just an opportunity for us, even as we are, are here in Somerville, Massachusetts, 2023, for us to take a step back and to say, in what ways has our culture rubbed off on us? Because here, Sodom is gone, but yet it lives on. And in what ways does the sin of this society has it rubbed off on us? Now, that's a really hard question to ask because I've been living in Boston for over 10 years, and uh, it's hard to see now. Now, it's like asking a fish how the water is. It's like, yeah, I don't see water. I just live in it. And so many of us, we just live in the culture that's around us. And so I think that uh, maybe it would be a fun exercise for us to all put on, uh, to imagine that we all hopped into a time machine, okay? We're going in a time machine. This room's a time machine, and we're going back in time to the day that this building was dedicated. That's like, I'm not sure exactly the day. I think it's like 1895 is when this building was, was dedicated. And let us all just imagine that we get to meet the first worshipers of Jesus in this building. And they get to look at us, and they get to observe our lifestyle, and they get to observe the culture that we come from. What would they observe about us 130-ish years later? What would they observe about us? Well, I'm not sure, but here are a few guesses. I think that they, if, they, if the people that originally worshiped in this building who, who sang to the Lord right where you're sitting, I think if they saw you today and saw our culture, that they would observe that Somervillians are wealthy, that we're busy, and a lot, I forgot the last one. Oh, man. And we're outraged. There we go. That we're wealthy, that we're busy, and that we're outraged. We live in one of the most wealthy communities in one of the most wealthy cities in one of the most wealthy nations in the world in all of history. The amount of wealth that we have around us is absurd. And what it leads to is lifestyle creep. I felt this, you felt this. Where, you know, if you had asked me 10 or 15 years ago if a um, million dollars was a reasonable amount of money to pay for a house, I would have told you never in a million years will a million dollars be a reasonable amount of money to pay for a house. And now I look at it, I'm like, eh, it's not too bad. <laughs> you know, like, like this, this looks like a deal. I don't know, standalone home in Somerville, a million bucks? Like, yeah, sign me up, this sounds good. Um, we all just experience lifestyle creep. It, it happens to us, especially as we get older and we have more wealth. And the wealth around us influences the way that we want to spend our time. Uh, my kids go to public school, and one of the great things about going to public school in Somerville is that all of my kids' friends, like all the parents, all the friends, they like our houses all look the exact same. 
okay? So it's not like you got this kid that's like going home to a mansion and, and just living it up. Like where I went to school, there were always people that lived in better neighborhoods than others. No, in Somerville, all the houses look the same for the most part. And so it's very egalitarian in that way. But you see it in how people spend their time. And then it starts to influence you. It's like, we're going skiing every weekend. And it's like, well, how do you do that? It's because we have a house in Vermont as well. And so then you're like, oh, well, they have a house in Vermont. Maybe I should think about buying a, a house in Vermont as well. Maybe I should think about uh, going skiing more often. And there's nothing wrong with skiing. I totally, I, I enjoy it. This is something that my wife and I have been talking about lately. It's like how we want to go skiing. Actually, my wife went skiing yesterday with our daughter. Um, but I think that the sin of the culture around us has a way of infiltrating our heart. And I'm just giving you a gentle push, okay? It was a hard push on alcohol, a hard push on sex, a gentle push now on you to evaluate the way that you're being influenced by the culture around you. Think about how busy you are. People in Somerville are super busy. And I think that if we look back 130 years, they would look at us and be like, wait, so what do you do in the evening? You turn on a magic box and you watch pictures and, and dialogue? Oh yeah, when was the last time you read a book? They might ask, like, how do you, when do you sing together? When, when do you enjoy a long meal together? Like, they, they wouldn't understand why we don't feel like we have time to meditate in the scripture. Why we feel like we don't have time to build relationships. It's because every time we have a tinge of that discomfort that comes from boredom, we pull out our phone and we start looking at pictures on our phone or whatever it might be and liking things. I think that they would observe something about us there. I think they would observe something about how outraged we are. Whether we're outraged by the injustices around us or we're outraged by those who are outraged and we're upset by how outraged they are. But most of us are outraged about something. The sin of the surrounding culture has a way of infiltrating even the strongest believers. After this passage, we never hear from Lot again. Lot's gone, okay? This is the end of Lot. It does not end well. He has a bad experience in this passage, and we don't hear from him again. But it doesn't give us, uh, it doesn't leave us without hope. Because at the end of Lot's journey, what we see happen is that his daughters do conceive. And his first daughter conceives, and her son becomes the father of the Moabites. And the second daughter conceives, and, and her son becomes the, the father of the Ammonites. And these two are a pain in, in Israel's tush for many years after this. But also, when you think about the Moabites, much later on in Scripture, you come to, about a thousand years later, you come to a Moabite woman who also has been left without a husband, who also has to use her resourcefulness to continue her line to save her mother-in-law, to save herself, who looks for a kinsman redeemer and who honorably finds a man to court her, to, to date her, and to, to pursue her, to redeem her, who ultimately becomes the grandmother of King David. And this is Ruth, the Moabite woman. Ruth is part of the lineage of Jesus himself. When you come into the New Testament, and you're reading the par when you're reading the genealogies, you see Ruth is listed as one of the ancestors of Jesus. So even in this dark cave, there comes like a line, a line to Jesus and a line to redemption, even here in the darkest, in one of the darkest passages in the entire scripture. 
And so that's one way that we had to think about how God is using these scriptures, is he's preserving this line of Jesus and showing that Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with those who have a past. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with those who have a past. It's right here in this passage. Now, the Lot then passes the, the mic over to his uncle Abraham, and he says, okay, your turn. Uh, let's keep this master class rolling. And Abraham's like, sounds good, let's go. And what we see him do is fall right back into old patterns. All right, let's look at, at Genesis chapter 20, if you have it. And we're just going to read the first couple of verses. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived from Kadesh and Shur, between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed to Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Uh-oh, we've seen this before. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, Gerar sent and took Sarah. When you're reading this, I know that when I read this like the first 10 times, uh, like earlier in my life, I was like, haven't I read this before? It just, like it, the way it's written, it just sounds exactly like the story we heard in Genesis, is it 12 or 13? It's right around there. And that's because it basically is exactly the same story that we heard before in Genesis with 12 or 13. When Abraham and Sarah, Sarai at that point, Abraham, uh, went into Egypt and he gave his wife, he told the Egyptians, Pharaoh, that it was his wife, that his wife was his, his sister. And so she was taken into his, his harem. And uh, then Pharaoh was like, what have you done? He realizes what's happened and he gives Sarah back. And the same thing happens here with Abimelech, um, whose name means son of the king, Abimelech. And, uh, but he is actually the king of this area. And what we see is Abraham falling back into these old patterns. Not only that, but when Abimelech confronts Abraham about this, what does he say? Um, well, Abimelech figures it out that that's happened, and God warns him in a dream and then he goes and confronts him. And then Abraham basically says, look, this is, this is what I've asked my wife to do for me every time. And you're like, really, Abraham? And it's like, we don't know that it happened more than twice. But given the way that Abraham responded whenever Abimelech, he was very defensive about his son. He was very defensive about what happened. He said, this is just the way that we do it, basically. It leads you to believe that this is not the first time that it's happened since uh, Sarah got taken by Pharaoh. At every place, he says, at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Eh, sounds, sounds like he did it more than twice. The fifth lesson about sin in this passage, and the, these last uh, four go kind of quickly, the, is old sins have a way of returning over and over and over again. You feel that, right? I know I feel that. It's like the same old stuff that I was dealing with as a 19-year-old, as a 16-year-old, just comes back in a different form. It's like I'm playing one of those video games. I don't know if you're a gamer, okay? Just stick with me with this one. But when you play a video game, it's like every level is super hard at the beginning. But then as you get better at it, your enemies become more treacherous, more terrible, but the ways that you fight are the same. You just have to get better at it and better at it. And I feel oftentimes that this is like our battle with sin, is... What felt hard to me at the beginning no longer feels hard. I can defeat those enemies, no problem. Now I've got 
even deeper things going on in my heart and I see it to a deeper level and it's like I have to use the same tactics to fight and it's like I'm always fighting at the same level. I'm always trying as hard as I can to defeat the evil one. And here we see Abraham returning to his old sins over and over again. Proverbs 26 puts it really graphically that says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And this is Abraham returning to his vomit, doing it again. He's embodying what the hymn writer says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. Oh, Lord, here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. It appears as though Abraham didn't struggle with the same sins as Lot, but he struggled with sin nonetheless. Friends, I think that we have a tendency and this is a bonus, a bonus point. So if we want to get to 10, okay, I'm just going to throw this one in here. Uh, Holy Spirit gave us 10 points today. Uh, we have a tendency to base our own spiritual growth based upon other people's sins. I don't sin in the same way as these people, and so I feel better about myself. But the reality is each of us have our own unique way of sinning, our own unique way of falling short own unique way. And so we can't judge our own spiritual vitality upon other people's struggles. We have to know that each person has their own battle. It leads us to this next point. I think we're at seven now. We grow numb to sin as we continue to practice it. That's what we see with Abraham here. He seems to be growing quite numb to his sin as he continued to practice it over and over again. It doesn't seem to bother him. He's very defensive whenever Abimelech addresses him. And I think that it goes the same for us today, that no matter what sin you're falling into, you grow more, more numb to it the more you practice it. That's why I'm like, hey, have a hard look at your drinking. Like, you're gonna grow numb to it? Have a hard look at it. Have a hard look at your cultural influences. We know this to be true. If you look at something like sexual sin, whether it's pornography usage or masturbation or having an affair, the first time that someone does those things, they feel a lot of guilt. But then the guilt subsides, right, as they continue to practice it. And it doesn't feel as bad. If you look at something like greed, the first time you cheat someone or the first time you spend a lot of money on something for yourself or you, you just amass a little bit of savings, you might feel a little bit of guilt and think about people who have less, but then before long, you just continue to slip down that pattern of greediness more and more for myself. Sin has a way to make us feel numb as we continue to practice it. Why does Abraham keep doing this? Point, point eight, sin is born from desire. Why do you do the things that you do? Why is it that you do the things that you do? Your actions reveal your heart. Your sin is born from wayward desires. This is why Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Why is this the greatest commandment? Why is it the greatest commandment to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And it's because if you get that one right, it shapes your desires and you don't fall into the other sins. If you love the Lord with all your heart, you don't fall into feeling like you need to lie to protect yourself. 
you don't feel, fall into, Abraham would not have felt like he needed to give away his, his wife because he would have trusted the Lord that, that he'll protect him. If you get that one correct, you'll never sin. And all sin is born from desire. And so here, Abraham has this desire. It's, not, it's like an inverted desire. Fear says, it doesn't say I want that. Fear says I don't want that. And so Abraham is, is living in this. Lesson nine of this master class, we're almost there, friends, is that sin doesn't just affect you, it affects the ones around you. Sin doesn't just affect you, but it affects those around you. When, when Abraham sinned in this kind of way, it didn't just affect him, it affected Sarah, it affected Abimelech, it affected all those around him. And in a similar way, when you sin, oftentimes our culture says that as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. But friends, even personal sin, as a member of the body of Christ, it wounds the body of Christ. We need each person to be experiencing the realities of the gospel, the truth of him, to be desiring God and nothing but God. And when you desire selfish things over desiring God, you're hurting the entire body of Christ in that way. Sin doesn't just affect you but affects everyone around you, which leads us to our last point, and, and this is where we'll conclude. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. Let's think about how Abimelech responds. Let's look at how he responds. If I was Abimelech, and I had just been swindled in this way, cheated in this way, lied to in this way, how would I have responded? I would have been like, you get your, your wife and your stuff and get out of my property. Get away from me. But how does Abimelech respond? Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. 20 was a massive amount at this time. He's given them a thousand pieces of silver, and it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Abimelech responds in outrageous, overwhelming generosity. If anyone models who God is in this passage, it is not Abraham, the, the main story that we've been following, but it's Abimelech, this, this king who doesn't know the Lord. But yet the Lord spoke to him in a dream, and he gets to model the way that the Lord cares for us and our son. You see, Abraham, massive sinner, messed up, keeps messing up, doing the same thing, and you might be saying, how could God have forgiveness for me when I keep on doing the same old things, when I keep on failing in the same old ways, I'm such a failure, how could the Lord have grace for me? And here, Abraham keeps sinning in the same ways. He doesn't even seem especially penitent about his sin, and yet Abimelech blesses him overwhelmingly, far more than he deserves, and in the same way, the son of the king, Jesus Christ, blesses us far more than we deserve. Ephesians chapter one. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Our God is rich in grace, and he's lavished that grace upon us, even though when we did not deserve it. Look, the gospel is really simple, and we've heard this whole master class in sin thing, and the only reason why we need to go through all of that is to get to this, which says that the grace of God is more and better. The grace of God is more and better. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is always more. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in kindness. He has lavished upon us the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. He is so overabundantly lavishing the riches of Christ on us. And this is the gospel, that though you are a mess up, We're all there together. Yes, repent of your sin. I hope you feel convicted. I hope that you turn because Jesus says that you have to. You have to turn from your sin. But know this more, that your turning from your sin is not what makes him love you, but he loves you based upon what Christ has done on your behalf. It's been lavished upon you. You are rich, though you do not deserve it. And that is the gospel that there's only one person who's perfectly obeyed, and that's Jesus. And that Jesus delights to show us grace. It's so easy to take Christianity and make it a list of do's and don'ts. These are sins. I'm going to stay away from them. I'm just going to do the right thing. That's not Christianity. Yes, repent of your sin, but Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is this good news that though your sins are many, his mercy is more, and he is always delighted to lavish the riches of God's grace. The more you sin, the more you understand your sin, the deeper you get into this, you understand your own heart, it just causes his grace to abound more and more. It causes it to to show that his glory more and more. This is the question of Romans 5. And if you get to the end of Romans 5 and you get to Romans 6, and Romans 6, Paul offers the question, what shall we do? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Because he understands that as we sin, God's grace abounds. We get to see more of his glory. We get to give him more magnification. And so what should we do? Should we just keep on sinning so that God's grace will be more and more bigger so that he'll look like a better God? That's the logical question. And if you get to that question, that means you're getting it. You understand the grace of God. And how does Paul respond, church? By no means. Thank you, yes. By no means. By no means. And so, it's a, well, I, I asked for it. Um, so, so, yes, fight your sin, kill your sin, repent of your sins, but don't do it in your own strength because Jesus has already defeated sin. He's been resurrected. It's defeated. And we just come to him thankful for all that he has done. We come to him today thankful for all he's done. And he's prepared a table before us as we eat of the bread and, and drink of the juice or the wine, whichever your conscience permits, we'll, we're reminded of the rich grace and mercy that he has for us. And so during this part of the service, we invite you to receive this meal, which is uh, just a, a reminder of the grace of God for us once again. And if you're a Christian here, we invite you to receive it and to be 
recommitted to defeating your sin and to loving him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you're not a Christian here with us today, you're not sure where you are with Christ, I invite you instead to receive the good news of Jesus, to be changed by him again, and to know that his grace is more. It's, it's more and more. As we do this, we're just going to be reminded of the promises and the grace of Jesus, that he's overwhelmingly gracious to us, church. Let's stand and respond to the Lord this morning. Father, as we come to your table, we pray that you would lavish upon us the riches of your mercy and help us to know anew what it means to be accepted, to be loved, to be cherished, not because of what we've done, but because of how much you love us in Christ, that you loved us so much that you sent your own son to pay the penalty, and it's not up to us. God, I do pray that you'll help us to fight against sin, that you'll help us to defeat the evil one. But God, I pray for anyone here that's sitting under the weight of sin, that they would take that weight off and place it on your shoulders and know that Jesus has already defeated it, that he is victorious, and we can trust in him today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.